I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Paul's letter to the Philippians. Last week we heard a great sermon from Pastor Phil from the book of Ruth, and today we go back to our main study of Philippians. Now the last, the last few times we've been in this study, we've been looking at the last paragraph of the first chapter, especially Philippians 1.29 and what Paul says about suffering. You might remember that verse where Paul says, it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for Christ. We spent a couple weeks thinking about, about that. And this morning, we're going to be moving on in the study to Philippians chapter 2. Our focus will be on the first four verses, which happens to be our next scripture memory passage. So this could help you with that as well. All right, now, what I want to do as we begin is to start by just reading the passage. But I want to read the paragraph before it and the paragraph after it. So let's start in Philippians chapter 1, 27. And we're going to read right through to chapter 2, verse 11. So Paul says, Philippians 1.27, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is a great text from beginning to end. But the main reason I wanted us to read all of the verses together was so that we could see uh, our text today in light of what's around it, okay? Because we're just going to focus on the first four verses of chapter 2, but I wanted us to see it in light of the paragraph before and the paragraph after. Now, why is that so important? It's not because our text today is hard 
to understand. You could read these four verses and I think have a pretty good idea of what they're about. This is primarily a call to unity, humility, and selflessness. Right? Pretty much anyone, even if they've never read the Bible, even if you just gave them these four verses outside of the Bible, if they read them, they would probably say that's what those verses are about. But I think that's where the danger comes in this, in this passage. Because the main ideas are so easy to spot, it's really easy to pull these verses out uh, and forget about the context that they're in. And not just that, I think it's really easy with these verses in particular to forget how they connect to Christ and to the gospel. So along these lines, it's, it's interesting to me. I've been thinking about our culture and the things that are emphasized in our text today. And it's interesting that the things that Paul praises and commends in these verses are also often praised and commended in our culture today, even by those who have no interest in Jesus. Now, I'm not saying people today always practice these things, but if you ask most people about unity, humility, and selflessness, I think that most people today in our culture would say those are good things, good things to aspire to, not bad things. Now, I should mention here that in the Roman culture uh, of the time, humility was actually not a virtue. Uh, Humility was not viewed favorably in Paul's day. It was definitely not praised in the Roman world. And I think this is the reason that it is often viewed positively today. I would point back to Jesus. Jesus changed a lot of people's thinking about humility. His life, his teaching, his death have had a huge impact on how humility is, is viewed today. So, but what Paul was saying here was actually very countercultural. So is what Jesus taught about humility. And we'll maybe talk about some more of that next week. But for right now, I'm just making this observation that most people today are mostly favorable in our culture toward the big themes of our text, unity, humility, selflessness. And so all of this together makes it really easy to pull these four verses out of their context and even to use them without making any reference to Christ or the gospel. For example, imagine a a lot of you work in, in various businesses around the community. Imagine a business hosting an annual meeting for its employees. If someone could easily get up at that meeting and make a challenge like this for the next year. They could say, you know, the key to our success as a business next year is unity. It's that we work together as a team toward the same goal, with the same vision. But I know that that's going to be hard. And it's going to require that we be humble and selfless this next year. We have to look out not just for our own interest, but for the interests of the other people on our team. That talk would go over well. You maybe have heard talks like that in your own workplaces. Or since football season is right around the corner. Can't you imagine a football coach sharing the same things with with the team at the beginning of the season? Men, the key to our season is unity. It's that we work together as a team. Same goal, same vision. But I know this is only going to happen if we're humble 
and selfless. If we are looking out not for our own good, but for the good of our teammates around us. In fact, I could see in a football case, the team posting these three things at the locker room door so that they hit them every, every time out to the field. Unity, humility, selflessness. I think this would connect well with the team, and I think it's actually pretty helpful advice. It would probably help the team, right? This is why I wanted to make sure at the outset that we see what's around these verses. Okay, these verses can be used in a good pep talk. There's no doubt they offer good advice for team building, but they are much, much more than that. And even more importantly, I want us to remember that these commands are directly connected to Christ and the gospel. Okay, so for example, look back at, at verse 27 of chapter 1, Philippians 1.27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind. Okay. See, for Paul, living worthy of the gospel is directly connected to unity in the church. No unity in the church, no living worthy of the gospel. They're directly connected. And in fact, unity is what demonstrates the power of the gospel in a church and the worth of the gospel to the people in the church. That is no different in our text today, chapter 2, 1 through 4. But then look ahead at Philippians 2, verse 5. <clears throat> this is where Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ. Now, that's the ESV, which is fine for this text, but I like the CSV a little better here. It says, for verse 5, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ. Okay. This, then that leads into that great text about Christ and his glory, but especially Christ's humility and selflessness. But what I want to see today is that the call in our text to humility and selflessness is directly connected to Christ. These are not just wise words that can be that should be shared without any reference to the gospel or to Christ. This is a call to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a call to adopt the same attitude that Christ had when he lived here on this earth with us. So our, our, our text today directly connected to Christ and the gospel. But I would go even further than this and say that truly fulfilling what's in our text today can only happen through the gospel, and through Christ. Okay, so I, I think when we read our text today, in the text next week, okay, Paul is highlighting Christ as our example. Okay? He is telling us to imitate our king, the one that we love. He is calling us to adopt the same attitude that Jesus Christ had. That's why he highlights Christ's humility in Philippians 2, 5 through 8. You know, Paul tells us, you know, look at Christ. He humbled himself. How? By becoming one of us. But Christ didn't stop there. Christ went even further. As a man, Christ humbled himself. He became a servant to all. But he didn't stop there. He went even further. 
Christ humbled himself all the way to death, even death on a cross. And why did Christ do all of that? He did that for our good, because he was not looking out for his own interest, but for ours. He died to save us from our sins. He bore our sins and failures in his body on on the cross. Christ is the greatest example of humility and selflessness ever. And Paul is calling us to adopt the same attitude. But I want to be clear at the outset today, especially if you haven't been here before, okay, that behind the call to follow Christ as your example is first the call to trust in Christ as your Savior for all the times you've failed to live like Christ. In other words, knowing Christ as your Savior from your sins is the prerequisite for following Christ as your example. Now, I think we're ready then to to look at our text. So look back at Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. This is the basis for Paul's call to unity. So Philippians 2, verse 1. Paul says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, then do what I'm telling you to do. That's basically what he says. Okay. Now, he doesn't say it quite that way at the end. But that gives you a sense of what Paul is doing in the text. He strings together a bunch of if clauses to get you ready for the then clause. Right? You could imagine someone doing this. I'm not saying you should do this. Uh, but you could imagine someone saying, well, if I really mean anything to you, and if you really care about me like you say you do, and if you appreciate me even a little bit, then do what I'm telling you to do. Okay, you could tell your kids that, but you shouldn't tell your kids that. Okay. Paul's words, I shouldn't say it like that. Okay, Paul's words here are not man- manipulative, like, like that sounded like, okay? But you can definitely sense what's going on here, like why he's stringing together all of the if clauses, right? Verse 1 gives us the basis for the call he wants to make in verse, in verse 2. Okay, but I want to look a little closer at verse 1. Okay, so remember, at the end of chapter 1, Paul calls his friends in Philippi to fight together as one for the gospel. Now he focuses in on that call to unity. And this is how he starts. He says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ. Okay, that's like saying, listen to me. If you have ever experienced any encouragement from being connected to Jesus. Okay, let me ask you that. Have you? Like, have you ever experienced any encouragement from Christ? from being connected to him, from being in him? I hope so, right? Then Paul goes on. And if you have ever experienced any comfort from love, and here I think he's probably thinking about God's love. He says, if you've ever experienced comfort from God's love. And again, I ask, have you? Like, have you ever experienced any comfort in your sorrows or in your suffering from knowing that God loves you? I hope so, right? He goes on. And if you have come to share in the Holy Spirit, again, we ask, have you? Have I? Like, do you have the Holy Spirit? Have you come to share in the Holy Spirit? I hope so. And then he concludes, and if there's any affection and sympathy. 
And here, he's, I think he's probably thinking about their love for him and for each other. He's saying something like, if there's any affection, any tenderness, any compassion in your hearts for me and for each other, and again, I ask, you know, do you have that in your heart? Like, do you have that in your heart for the people around you? For your brothers and sisters here in this place? Is there, is there any affection in your heart for these people that are here with you today? I hope so. Paul says, well, if, there, if there's any of this stuff, then what? All right, that's, that's verse 2. Then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Okay, that, that right there is the heart of this text. That's the call to unity. Okay, but, but notice how he says it. Look at verse 2 again. He says, complete my joy by being unified. Okay. And I just want to point, point this out, that Paul did not have to say it that way. He could have left out the first couple of words and gotten the idea across, right? <clears throat> he could have just said, if these things are true, if you've ever experienced these things, then be of the same mind. But he doesn't say it quite that way. Instead, he says, if these things are true, if you have any of this kind of stuff in your heart, then complete my joy by being of the same mind with each other. This reminded me this week of how invested Paul was in his dear friends in Philippi and in that church. I mean, think about it. Paul appeals not just to what Christ wants them to do, but even to what brings him, their dear brother, great joy. And this is how Paul, I've been thinking about this this week, this is how he often talks about the churches that he planted and the people that he invested his life in. He often talks in a way that I don't think we do. He talks about how his joy is connected to the people to the churches he's planted and the people he's poured his life into. I mean, for example, in Philippians chapter 4, this is what he says in the, in the first verse of Philippians 4. He says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown. Then he goes on. This reminded me of the Apostle John, who said things like, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And this is a great challenge to me, I think to any pastor, to love the flock like this. But this should remind us all to pray for and pursue relationships with each other in our church so that we might feel like this. Where our joy is filled up when we see our brothers and sisters loving Jesus and loving each other. Does that bring you joy when you see brothers and sisters serving each other? When you hear of the hospitality that's being shown, of people in your church seeking to evangelize, does this bring you joy? This is the kind of thing Paul is talking about. But also notice how many different ways 
Paul describes unity this, in verse 2, Philippians 2.2. 2. <clears throat> he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. He says it a lot of different ways. This is, a call, this is not a call to surface unity, you know, just like where everybody just tolerates each other. It's a call to be united in mind, heart, vision. And I want to remind us that this kind of unity was on Jesus' mind and in his prayers for us as he was going to the cross. Remember, for example, how Jesus washed the disciples' feet shortly before he died. And he did that after they had been bickering with each other. Remember how Jesus prayed to his father for us shortly before he died, that we may be one as they are one. Paul picks up his passion for unity from Jesus. This is how he describes living worthy of the gospel. It's to be striving not against each other, but together as one for the advance of the gospel, and that's what he has in mind here. <clears throat> now, I want to I be clear that Paul is not implying that the whole church is always going to have the same opinion about everything that's going on inside or outside the church. Okay, maybe you can remember our study from Romans, if you were here at that time. We, we spent a lot of time in Romans 14 and 15, and if you're we're here for that, or if you go back and listen to that, you'll remember those chapters are specifically about what to do when we disagree with each other in the same church. Okay? Paul did not envision the church being a place where everyone has the same opinion about everything. But he did envision and pray for a truly unified church. What would, what would that look like then? He longed to hear of a church that shared the same trust in Christ, the same passion for the gospel to go forward, that shared the same willingness to suffer for Jesus. Paul longed for a church that shared in the love of God, where the members loved each other with the kind of love that God had first shown to them. But the question is, how do we actually do that, or, or what leads to that in a church? How does a church attain unity, or maintain, maybe it's better, this kind of unity? What's the path toward a deep, lasting unity in a church? That, in Paul's writings, the path to that is not easy, okay? but it's also not complicated. Okay? And, and I think maybe Maybe the best text on it, for a short text, is the next two verses. Okay, Paul has a lot to say about unity in his letters, but if you want to know the path to it, you can look at Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, I'm not going to say that that's all there is to unity in the New Testament, but there's no doubt that those two verses are incredibly helpful 
and understanding the path to lasting unity in a church. In fact, I think for those of us who have experienced the sadness and sorrow of being in a church at some point in the past with a lot of disunity or discord, I imagine we would agree that a lot of that disunity was due to people not obeying these two verses. Maybe us, even. Okay. The path to unity is the path of humility and selflessness. The path to disunity in a church is the path of ambition, pride, and selfishness. And notice how Paul brings the challenge down to each individual in the church. Look at verse 4. He says, let each of you not only look to his own interest. And the text really reads something like, instead, let each of you look out for the interest of others. He says it twice in the text. This is a call to each of us in Christ's body. Paul doesn't often do that. I mean, his writings, he often is calling everybody to everything. But here he specifies each of you. Each of you needs to listen to this. This is the path toward a body dwelling together in unity. And that's a beautiful thing when it happens. What is, what is the path? Humility, selflessness. Now, I know that it can be really easy for us to find examples where other people haven't done this very well for us. I'm sure you have examples like that. Disappointments in churches, maybe in this church. We all have stories like that. Okay. I do think we often remember those better than all the good things. Okay. But we probably all have stories where people have not done this for us. Okay. That's not good. Okay. That's sad when that happens. That's bad. But it should not shock us that that happens. There will be disappointments like that in the church until Jesus comes. Okay? doesn't excuse it, but we should realize like that is not that surprising. But what can happen to us is we can latch on to those things. They get etched in our, in our minds, it's all, and we start to think that that's all that there is in the church. Disappointments, people failing me. Or what can happen is we can start to use that, the failures of others, toward us, to excuse ourselves for not listening to what Paul is saying. That's bad, too. Okay. And, and I want to say I'm thankful that Christ did not do that. See, after all, people failed Christ all the time. Like, all the time. But Christ still, in humility, put others before himself all the way to the cross. He did not look out for his own interest. He went all the way to the cross for us. And the call in this text is to adopt the very same attitude of our Lord, particularly toward others in our own church. The call to us today is to guard ourselves <clears throat> from selfish ambition and pride, to repent of it wherever it's surfaced, and in humility to consider those around us as more important than ourselves. To look not only 
out for our own interest, but, but especially for the interest of others. The difficulty in this text <clears throat> is not in understanding it. Sometimes that's hard in text. That is not the hard part with this text. The real difficulty with this text is in doing it. That is the challenge. And at least from my own experience, <clears throat> I think that the greatest difficulty, for me anyway, <laughs> is to live this way consistently over the long haul. Like we often, I often, <laughs> okay, have spurts of this. <laughs> okay? Especially in times of crisis. But I think it's in the ordinary, mundane, day-to-day -day life of the church that it is hardest to live this way. I think we probably all experience this to some degree. For example, when a member of the church <clears throat> gets terrible news, whether about their family or their health or their job, <clears throat> I find it anyway easier in those moments of crisis to remember these things and to practice them. It's easier to put their interest above our own, at least for a little while. And of course we should do that. I'm not critiquing that. But what is often harder in the church is to live this way normally, over time, after you've actually gotten to know each other <laughs> and each other's faults. It can get harder and harder to put others' interests above our own, to do it again, to deny ourselves again, to crucify our pride again to adopt the humble, selfless attitude of Christ for the good of that person, really, that person. And that's where I'm reminded that I need a savior from all my sins and failings, one who bled and died to take them all away. And thankfully, we have a savior who did that for us. And so if we go through a text like this that is very direct and challenging, and you feel that you need pardoned. Look to Jesus again for pardon. And let's look to him for the grace to follow in his steps. He does not call us to a path he has not already gone. We can look to him and trust that he's given us his spirit to walk in his steps. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for a clear and pointed challenge to us about how to treat each other in the church. And, and Lord, I want to thank you for the unity that I have experienced in our body. I don't think of these things today and think of all of our failures, Lord. As a church, I, I'm sure I know that we don't live this way like we should in many cases. But Lord, I, I thank you for the real joy that, and unity that we have here. And I pray that you would preserve it, that you would use this text today to, to remind us to flee from selfish ambition and pride and to put on the Lord Jesus to clothe ourselves with humility toward each other, trusting that you grant grace to the humble. Lord, I pray that you would 
forgive us for the things that maybe you have brought to our mind by your spirit today, areas where we have failed to look out for others. I thank you for Jesus, that he went to the cross for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for laying down your life for us, for looking out for our interests so that, and for paying the price so that we could be forgiven. And I pray that all of this today would lead us back to you, both to your death for our sins and to your wonderful example. We pray this in your name. Amen.